Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Judge Benis Aldana, president of the National Judicial College, and we're talking about the need for America's courts to speak out against systemic racism and to recognize and to correct their own racist tendencies. For this conversation, we're joined by Judge Gail Williams Byers of the South Euclid Municipal Court as we continue our discussions of race and racism in America. Judge, the National Judicial College has great respect internationally as well as nationally. Uh, as being a prime source of educating new judges as well as judges who need continuing education. The National Judicial College came out with a statement following the Floyd killing uh, in in Minnesota. Uh, First of all, talk about why you came out with a statement and what you said in that statement. Yes, thank you, uh, Tom, for inviting me, first of all, to have uh, an opportunity to have a conversation with you on this particular topic. College did come out with a statement uh, about the recent events in our country. We came out with this statement particularly because of the need to speak out clearly about the ongoing racial injustice, and specifically systemic racism, we feel, uh, has plagued the criminal justice system for for too long. I know that there's this current momentum in our country to confront and address this, and I think that the courts should not be exempted from, from this. And certainly a number of state Supreme Courts have come out with these similar statements before the National Judicial College actually did. And uh, recently, the National organization that's um, head of all the uh, judicial courts in the country, the Conference of Chief Justices and and the Conference of State Court Administrator came out with a resolution in support of racial equality and, and, and justice for all, specifically recognizing the need to, one, recognize the uh, uh, persistence of institutional and structural racism resulting from policies and practices uh, that have disproportionately impact persons of color. 
and also uh, recognizing that too many uh, people and persons of color have a uh, lack of confidence in the fairness of the courts and the criminal justice system. The Conference of Chief Justices and the Conference of State Court Administrators reaffirm their continuing commitment to encourage, support initiatives that uh, address unconscious bias and facilitate ways to have these uncomfortable conversations and to look at other structural ways that the system has been, been unfair and to address those. So for us at the college, um, we have been committed to this for a very long time. You know, we have had a course called When Justice Fails, where we examine the role of the judiciary, uh, where they have been silent looking at history. And recently we took that course in Montgomery, Alabama, as you know, the birthplace of the civil rights movement and work with the Equal Justice Initiative and Brian Stevenson to address our judges uh, in this particular issue. Uh, and so that was a very uh, powerful experience for our judges. And one of the message that um, Brian Stevenson had for us was that uh, in looking at this issue, we really need to first of all uh, recognize the truth and what he calls engage in uh, truth telling. And so most recently, I think, um, in light of the current events, courts have started to do that. In particular, the Washington State in their statement have recognized the role judges have had in devaluating um, people of color or the lives of people of color. In fact, they've looked at the cases that have um, been racist or unjust in the past and, and have disavowed those. Stevenson's message is to, first of all, deal with the truth and then hopefully move with the reconciliation. Judge, let me, let me ask you, because uh, what you're saying is certainly, uh, in my opinion, appropriate, but there have to be across the nation conservative judges, and I, I'm not talking about political party conservative. I'm just talking about sort of old school conservative Uh that think that this is not the role of a judicial college or this is not the role of state judiciaries to make such statements. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I did uh, receive those types of uh, feedback. Um, not a lot. Uh, I received more positive feedback than uh, the negative feedbacks. And you're right. Some of those feel that that's not the role of the judiciary to do that. But uh, in fact, it, when we say justice, that is the role to speak out against racial injustice. And particularly with the courts, it's not evaluating specific cases, but when there is a problem with the system, um, we are actually compelled by the code of judicial conduct to, um, to address those, um, to make sure that we have a fair administration of justice. And so my belief in that, that we are compelled to do that. You know, recently, Chief Justice Beasley, also one of the judicial leaders that came out with a statement, and she said that, uh, you know, we have some of the best judges, courts, and court leaders across the nation, uh, but all of us can stand to be mindful that there are some difficult truths that we have a responsibility to address and confront. And um, I agree with her. For the most part, I think um, judges do their best once they uh, put on that robe and once they become a judge to try to be fair, neutral, and detached. But I think that as we have learned that uh, we have both explicit and implicit bias and we need to recognize those and hopefully guard ourselves to make sure that we um, as judges uh, 
make fair decision based on the facts before us and, and the law. Talking about having difficult conversations, uh, we have a great deal of thanks to give to, to Judge Gail Williams Byers, who uh, prompted us to start this series of difficult conversations. Uh, our conversation with you is our eighth one uh, on different aspects of systemic uh, racism. Uh, she's taken her position as a judge and the first uh, black woman judge, first black judge of a municipal court in Ohio, and brought to our attention and said, you know, we really need to have these difficult conversations. So, Judge Byers, let me let me bring you into this conversation at the, at this point. How how do you see? the importance of what the National Judicial College says as it relates to in the trenches where you are in a municipal court in a near suburban setting in Cleveland. So I'm encouraged awesomely to hear President Aldana talk about the, the role and the ability of the Judicial College, the National Judicial College, to teach and to educate judges at every level and every corner of the judiciary in this important area of race. Why? Because racial reconciliation is the responsibility of the entire justice system apparatus, and courts in particular can lead the way. Um, aside from what um, Judge Aldana said, um, aside from statements and resolutions and even mandates, um, one thing um, President Aldana pointed out, um, which is offered through the Judicial College, is courses on implicit bias and um, how to recognize that. And what we know is perception is reality, right? And so for so many that intersect and engage with our justice system, how they perceive that justice system is their reality. Whether or not um, we desire that to be the case, the fact of the matter is, is how they've perceived and interacted with it is just how they realistically walk away from it feeling. And so if you walk into a courtroom and you perceive that that judge is biased or does not appreciate these these huge differences or or has um, no no real empathy or understanding um, or appreciation for um, these these clear distinctions and much of which um, is born out of race then you're gonna walk out of that experience with that being your reality from from that that courtroom and so you have the, the benefit as a judge to be able to, to learn how to manage these biases, how to acknowledge them, but also how to be a better judge um, by putting these things in perspective. Um, one of our first conversations, our first courageous conversations in these series included me disclosing um, a, a very um, a very alarming experience that I had with with an individual in in I would call a um, fairly powerful position here, even locally, who clearly clearly had um, 
a an inherent bias. Um, and it was manifested in the language that they used toward me. And I would even say that that was a racial bias. Um, and it was racist language that they perhaps did not even realize as they were using it was such. But what they ultimately came to realize as they apologized after the podcast was aired was that, you know, they did in fact harbor an implicit bias that deserved to be acknowledged and dealt with and had from that time until now had had addressed that. Well, judges are no different. Um, But what I would say to President Aldana is I would ask how you see the judiciary and how you see the judicial college continuing to work with judges to deal with some of these other challenges that we face inside of this apparatus um, to break down these barriers. Because I do think that there are other things that we can do um, to address this racial reconciliation. And so what do you think are some of the other things that we can do. I definitely think dealing with the areas of implicit bias, but I'll also tell you as an example, you know, one of the things I had an experience, I was reading an article just two days ago and I had a clutch the pearls moment because I said, you know, of all the things we've experienced, we still haven't gotten really the message of it. And it was an article about a local judge who was actually defending himself because the article talked about how in the midst of a pandemic, this judge still wasn't doing enough to bring in enough money to the local court um, because their the revenues were down, the court wasn't bringing in enough money, and that was apparently to the dismay of the local leaders. And I could only think of how through the eyes of some of the poorest and perhaps minorities who are more likely than not to end up in that court, how they would see this because they're likely the ones that are impacted and what the judicial college could do to help arm um, judges with more resources to, to combat these perceptions. Because again, perception is reality. Yes. So let me, uh, first of all, um, want to um, let you know about a poll that, we did of our alumni and it's unscientific but uh, the question was whether or not they believe that systemic racism existed in the criminal justice system and um, a clear majority i think over 65 percent said yes and obviously the rest uh, said no but you know um i thought that the number should have been higher um super majority beyond but uh but it wasn't, and you know, judges had a number of reasons why um, they feel, believe that systemic racism isn't an issue, and 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 some have even said that it's a it's all media created, which I'm kind of concerned why that is. But um, in any event, um, I am, you know, uh, I feel more comfortable, or at least confident, that I think that. Majority of judges do want to do the right thing and want to make sure that um, the promise of equal justice under law is uh, it's, is what we're all about. And um, and so here at the college, you know, 
as part of this statement that we issued, we wanted to make sure that we do engage in this kind of honest, deep conversation about these issues because, you know, the judiciary has a part in it. But, you know, although um, injustice and inequality um, often track along racial lines and, um, and racism has persisted for a long time and there's a disproportionate impact on people of color, at the end of the day, it is really an American problem. And that's why I'm also heartened to see that uh, I think majority of Americans uh, believe that it's, um, it's time to make some long lasting change. And part of that is the conversation piece. And um, here at the college, we want to facilitate that. So uh, as we said in our statement, uh, we are uh, launching a series of conversation with the judiciary on this topic. Um, and we are kicking that conversation off in a couple of weeks with a number of chief justices. Uh, and um, and then uh, other series focusing on a particular per, per particular topic, including, you know, artificial intelligence and the criminal justice system. Uh, we have a, a number of justices from the Washington State Supreme Court being part of that conversation as well later on, a number of reformers talking about um, current criminal justice reform efforts and um, and other other topics. So we, this is gonna go on uh, for the rest of the year. And I hope by doing this, we really can highlight some of the solutions that we can um, adopt. And um, as I stated earlier on, um, the Conference of Chief Justices and the Conference of State Court Administrators are really committed uh, to uh, developing strategies to address this. So as a whole, I think, you know, the majority of the judiciary knows that this is an issue, needs to be recognized, and we need to um, to address it. And um, here at the college, we want to make sure that that momentum uh, stays strong and continues. I mean, we've been doing that in the past, but uh, more so this year that we want to make sure this is a, a real a focus and that it's not just another blimp uh, in the year. So, Judge, l let me ask, the, the National Judicial College has always been sort of in the vanguard of leading judges into change, but uh, you and I and Judge Byers know that the judiciary is almost always behind. It's behind uh, the world is, as it moves through technology, it's behind in various other aspects. Part of what I perceive the Judicial College does is sort of it teaches at the cutting edge, brings judges up to date on technology, brings judges up to date on various aspects uh, of courtroom uh, procedure, etc., is that part of what you're doing here, bringing judges forward, uh, bringing them you know, up to the cutting edge of looking at systemic racism? Yes. I mean, you know, taking a look at our mission, the mission is about making the world a more just place by educating and inspiring its judiciary. So since I've been here at the college uh, now for the last three years, uh, we want to make sure that judges are not only taught about the specific things they need to do to do their job, but we want to make sure that they are inspired 
also to do their job and to, you know, to really uh, fulfill their role as judges. Uh, and again, as I said, the promise of equal justice under law. And so um, this is, as I mentioned, been a critical component of our uh, curriculum in terms of looking at when justice fails. Um, and really this goes to the threats to the independence of the judiciary. When the public no longer have confidence in the system, obviously, and, and that becomes an issue. So um, it's not only in the self-interest of the judiciary to address this issue because of uh, preserving the independence of the judiciary, but it's the right thing to do uh, um, for all the people that uh, come before them. So let, let me be devil's advocate for both of you here for a moment. And Judge Gale, I want your uh, opinion on this as, as well. But why has it taken so long? You know, why has it taken all this series of law enforcement killings and public demonstrations to get people's attention? Why haven't the courts and judges you know, done this years ago or led the way years ago. Uh, it it seems sort of a, a day late and a dollar short in many respects. Um, I think that, um, you know, listening to Brian Stevenson um, recently, and he said that the courts have been silenced for too long. And I think there's some certain truth to that. Uh, and, um, and I think there's certain certain narrative um, and certain um, myths that exist that somehow that um, uh, you know um, the judiciary is um, not able to do things. But you know, but you know, although we can point out some of the failures in the history when judges have failed, we also have some examples, shining examples when uh, courts um, have risen, you know, during the civil rights movement, as you know, uh, Judge Frank Johnson in, in Montgomery is one of the, one of the uh, federal judges uh, who have made courageous decision on those civil rights decision uh, and, you know, at the cost of his uh, threats to his, to his life and, and his family. And, um, we have some examples of when the just when judiciary has failed, but we also have shiny examples when the judiciary um, has succeeded, and and, I, and those are replete through um, the history of of this country. And um, I think this is just a moment in time to um, uh, to again remind the judiciary that they have a responsibility, and um, that they are, as Judge uh, Byer said, that uh, they have a responsibility to also take the lead on it. So, and I hope that uh, what the Conference of Chief Justices did last week is taken seriously and they do take some, some steps. And, um, you know, some of those judges who have commented and said, hey, you know, this is no place for the judiciary, where we have your judicial leaders, you know, taking the step, want to recognize, but also committed to, uh, to the hard work of, um, ending racial injustice. And I'd also like to challenge um, both you, Tom, and, and you, um, President Aldana, to consider something else um, in, in this line of thinking as to why judges may or may not 
either see themselves as responsible um, or care to to get as involved in this particular role. I think what's happened traditionally is maybe judges didn't see this as their role to to get as involved to to perhaps read the the rules as precluding um, too deep of an involvement. But then also consider the fact that I think um, President Aldana used a word that I think perhaps hits the nail on the head, which is courageous. It takes a lot of courage to stand up to just the wrongfulness of a lot of what's happening and to speak out against it or, or to use your, the power of your gavel to make a statement. That does take courage. And it, consider now that there are a lot of ways for the backlash to come back at you. Um, one thing you pointed out before was, yeah, there, you know, you could face, you know, harm to yourself or to your family, which, you know, is is harm and that's concerning and alarming. Absolutely. But also consider how now, I mean, there are those who will seek to publicly destroy you and to destroy your integrity or to seek to to destroy you personally either by using social media outlets or using um, the media to discredit you because of you know a particular ruling or a particular position that you've taken. And so depending on how you have come to be a judge, meaning if you are in an electoral cycle, you are maybe constantly thinking of how you are ruling in a way that does not jeopardize that. And although our judicial conduct rules frequently often remind us that we are not to make rulings with that thought in mind, it is, I think, a form of human nature that has you thinking of that. I think one time during our conversation, Tom, you may have asked me, you know, what do my, you know, non-minority colleagues say about the, the constant barrage of attacks that I've experienced. Right. And right. The, the response is nothing. And a lot of it is nothing because of self-preservation. And so insofar as they would say nothing because of what they obviously clearly see happening to me, they would say even less about what they obviously or clearly see happening to a random black or brown individual on the street because they clearly have no connection or connectivity to that individual. So I challenge you to just consider or think about, you know, what what judges are perhaps being asked to to put on the line. Well, let me ask a, a follow-up to, to, to your comments, Judge Gale, which are, are certainly spot on. Um, the average person does not differentiate between the police, the prosecutors, and the courts. The average person throws us all in to the same basket uh, and what the police do is reflected on on the courts. We have done, we in the judiciary, I think, over time, have done a terrible job 
of educating the public, what the role of a judge is, and how that role fits in to uh, making sure that people's rights are, are preserved. How do we reach a point that we can clearly differentiate ourselves from the rogue cop on the street? You're right. And, and I'll say, you know how many times I hear, you know, well, you all arrested me. And I'm like, wait a minute. That wasn't me. Yeah. And, um, this, you know, obviously we're in the business of education. We're also in the business of justice here at the National Judicial College. And uh, it reminds me of um, Nelson Mandela's quote of education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. Uh, and, you know, that's what we're all about here. And I'm hoping that uh, not only educating the judges, but here at the college, we recently um, instituted a program to help young people uh, learn more about the justice system uh, and also about uh, about judges in general. So we've uh, used uh, Justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor's book as a way uh, to engage uh, these young people, not only to um, spark an interest in reading, but learning about the justice system, about judges. And so we've essentially recruited judges. You know, the program is called uh, Reading um, and Robes uh, to uh, have those kind of conversation earlier on uh, with, with young people. And I'm glad to hear that because I, I really think, you know, we spend a lot of time judges educating judges, and that's most assuredly necessary. But we spend so little time educating the public, whether it's young people or whether it's uh, your average mom and pop out there with two kids and, and a mortgage. You know, we don't do a good job educating them at all. And you look at our school systems, we don't have civics. I mean, if you follow up on, on Sandra Day O'Connor, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor's move to get social studies back in the schools, you know, there is a paucity of information out there. And we don't, as members of the judiciary, do a very good job of helping clarify that. Exactly. And so, you know, there are a number of other initiatives that are ongoing, uh, obviously, um, in terms of civic education and, and educating the public about the judiciary. The American Bar Association Judicial Division uh, has a, mo a month dedicated. It's in March, the first two weeks, really. It's called the Judicial Outreach uh, Week, but it's, it's now been moved to beyond a week, where judges go out there and educate the public about their role in, in the justice system. So um, I think you're right. And I think even in when we talk about disinformation, right? And disinformation recently has been primarily focused on, uh, on the election, uh, but there's a lot of disinformation, state-sponsored disinformation about the judiciary and um, to essentially, you know, uh, destabilize our democratic institutions. and. Part of the way combating that is really having a robust civic education where our citizen really, citizen really uh, knows about our, our system so that when they get that disinformation, they know it's not the truth. So, I so you're agree. right. I think, um, you're right. That one, and we need civic education is part of the solution, I think. So, I think 
I, I would say, um, President Aldana, that's so very true, because what I see is that lack of civic education, as you've talked about, that um, that challenge to um, the independence of the judiciary from all of those other aspects, but the lack of information and that lack of civic education further leads to the erosion of faith in the judiciary. What you don't know, you don't trust. And yeah. that's precisely what is at play here. Yes, and I think you hit it the right word again, uh, trust. Uh, and, uh, and the National Center for State Courts has, uh, as you know, have uh, conducted uh, uh, annual survey on public and uh, trust and trust and confidence in the courts and um, and uh, it's looking like you know there's less and less trust um, in the courts. Uh, but uh, the National Center and also the Conference of Chief Justices are uh, also engaging in the public by having a series of um, uh, town halls around the country in uh, understanding. Um, what uh, the public perception of the courts are and hopefully uh, looking at those issues to address them. And here's what we see is what I would hope we could do or what I would hope would be of of, um, prominent concern is that we would see an influx of this, um, this infused interest in our communities of color because what we know for a fact is that our courthouses and our courtrooms are by and large um, saturated with individuals, black and brown individuals. And that these are the, the people who tend to know the system less, that they have um, less of an ability to navigate the processes. They know the language less. They are less likely to be able to afford counsel. They are more often, um, they more often feel pressured to resolve cases, even if they are not in their best interest because of fear of other outcomes. Again, even if these aren't in their best interest and no matter how you may seek to explain these things to them, um, they're more concerned about the here and now. And so if there is some interest in going into communities to explain to you know the youngest of um, our, our communities, our citizenry of how this system and how this process works, I would hope that that interest starts with communities that are highly populated with the folks who we know for a fact make up the greatest proportion of litigants in our courtrooms across America. And those individuals tend more often than not to be people of color. The same people who, yes, when it comes to that um, poll regarding systematic racism, which by the way, I, I will openly say you know, I, I do believe that, in, in fact, there is there is systematic racism that does exist. I mean, take, for example, you know, the the policies regarding, you know, sentencing on crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. Uh, the the disparities between the two is just obvious. There's clearly clearly more harsh sentencing guidelines that are outlined for crack cocaine, which is saturated in communities of color than powder cocaine that is clearly in 
non-minority communities and the purpose of which could not be more clear. But that being said, if we are going to use the resources of our best and our brightest and our legal fields, then we need to make sure that we already know that non-minority communities more often than not have the ability to expand their educational resources. If they want to bring back civics, if they want to provide those additional resources, they have the ability to do that. Um, Again, not always, but more often than not, it's the communities of color that tend to not have the immediate ability to infuse those resources and therefore rely on the the very um, organizations that you've outlined, President Aldana, and would desperately need that that understanding so that they are not immediately fearful. Um, right. And that if they do are fearful, that that fear is based on yeah. the reality of their circumstances. And I think part of the purpose of a civic education is really to uh, reaffirm our kind of shared values and commitment to certain principles that uh, that we that there shouldn't be any question, you know. Um, and I was kind of um, shocked to learn recently, and I think I may have heard it in the news, but I didn't realize that there was a, uh, not, I don't know if it's a concerted effort, but uh, uh, an issue that um, Sherilyn Eiffel raced regarding um, nominees uh, to federal bench uh, when they were asked whether or not uh, Brown versus Board of Education is good law and couldn't answer it or would not answer it. To me, that's alarming uh, when uh, that not only a settled law, uh, but the principles that came out of that case uh, should not be controversial or um, you know, something anyone should be against. So, or still uh, in dispute. Right. <laughs> so, um, I mean, obviously, there are issues in terms of um, implementation of some of those issues, but uh, but it's just talking to me that someone who's uh, you know about to take the bench and can't answer that question. Let me take us in one last direction. We've got uh, six or seven minutes uh, left, and and we have been talking, uh, Judge Byers and and me, with other guests about uh, it's not enough now to say that you're not a racist. If you are not anti-racism then you're part of the problem. Uh, Do courts see themselves as not racist or do they take that next step and consider themselves anti-racist? I mean, I can't specifically speak about that in terms of the courts other than the recent survey we did on whether they believe systemic racism exists. But I think for the most part, the judges that um, we see, I think there's a recognition that, uh, you know, you have to be anti-racist as being part of uh, the collective um, action to 
Uh, we've been defining anti-racist as, and, and maybe Judge Byers has a different definition, but we've been defining anti-racist as taking some affirmative action against racism. Now, that could be the way a judge conducts his or her court. It could be uh, the way they address defendants. It could be any number of ways, but it has to be some kind of affirmative action. Is that part of what you're trying to teach? Yes. Well, we have a course called Procedural Fairness, and uh, that's part of it. It's not only that you're actually uh, hopefully preside over a, a fair process, but also that, that there's a perception that it, it's, it's fair. That's in how you treat uh, the litigants, uh, the counsel, the parties in, in, the, in your courtroom. Um, yes, that's one of our courses uh, that we uh, teach judges. Um, you know, it doesn't specifically fall into the category of uh, anti-racist, but it's, it's uh, something that uh, we do here to make sure that um, everyone who uh, um, in, is in the courtroom get their day in court and, and that the judges uh, do their job. So. But if Judge, I could say, yeah, jump there, in. I, I wanted to say that is actually, I believe, an important step in um, ensuring a courtroom environment is anti-racist. Because yes, historically speaking, there are so many who believe that there are a set of rules reserved for white litigants, while there is a different set of rules reserved for non-white litigants. Mm -hmm. For example, you have litigants who may sit back and watch the white litigant be referred to as ma'am or sir, or right. Mr. So-and-so and Miss So-and-so, who may be patiently waited on while they, you know, search for an item or, you know, you know, or speak with their attorney while the black or brown litigants are referred to by their first names right. and are forced to quickly respond with answers and do not have attorneys, nor are they offered. And this distinction, although it may not have seemed intentional by the jurors, is taken note of by the other litigants in the room. And you may have, you know, Again, black or brown litigants for whom, you know, the judge may never apologize for taking the bench late and explaining why there was a 30 or 45 minute delay for them coming out and taking the bench. But if the first person up is a perhaps, you know, white litigant, there may be a, an extended explanation about there being a conference call that they absolutely had to take and had to work through some things and they apologize, but they'll make sure they get their case moving fast. Exactly. These are just basic respectful things that should happen for every litigant. Right. And it shows a level playing field for everyone, no matter who you are. Exactly. And that this process, this process is fair and just for everyone, because let's just be honest, there in fact was and in some corners of 
yes, even America, it does not happen for everyone. And so teaching judges that the process needs to be fair and must be fair, in fact, is ground zero for anti-racism across the board for everyone. And so I would say that that, in fact, does display that that affirmative action of being anti-racist. Yes, that's part. Yeah, absolutely. That's part of it. And using, you know, making sure the process is fair, but also the language it uses um, perceived to be fair. So uh, we also have courses that specifically deal with uh, self-represented litigants as well. So in, in, in that way, we also um, deal with that issue. President Aldana, let me give you uh, our, our last question and, and uh, let me give you a little background. Um, you know, I, I was uh, raised and came up uh, during the, the civil rights movement uh, back in the, the late 50s, 60s. Um, and I thought with the passage of certain legislation in 64 and 65 that we had hope. I, I thought that racism was on the decline. Now, 50 plus years later, I'm going, what happened? Was I delusional? You know, was, was this here all the time? Had we never truly addressed it? Did we just put a Band-Aid on it? Are you hopeful that we can truly make systemic change, even in the courts, which you have uh, uh, jurisdiction over in educating, are you encouraged that we truly can make the changes that are necessary? Yes, and I think that part of being anti-racist is to be hopeful. Um, it reminds me of um, John Lewis' word in terms of continuing to, uh, you know, the battle and, and uh, never give up uh, in uh, and so it's, it's not a struggle just for a day. It's a continuing struggle. But I am hopeful and heartened that um, individuals and organizations are committing themselves uh, to real change. Um, you see it not only um, in, in our um, sports figures, but, you know, not only entertainment, but... Uh, of course, certain politicians, but also the judiciary, I think, uh, has made it loud and clear that they're committed to this change, um, not just here at the National Judicial College, but as I said earlier on, um, you know, the judicial leaders of this country, the Conference of Chief Justices and the state Supreme Courts. Um, I don't think I've, I've seen that, and uh, it's rare that they do that, and, and, and they have. So we really have a um, momentous opportunity to do that, and I'm hoping that uh, we do make some change and that... Uh, Hopefully, uh, we all get to uh, to see that change soon. President Aldana, thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing your perspective and your expertise. Judge Byers, as always, uh, it's great to have you along for the ride and, and co-host with me. I, I really appreciate both of you and, and your time. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. 
Today we've been talking with Judge Bennis Aldana, President of the National Judicial College, about the need for courts to speak out against racism in America. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.